This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Good to have you. Carm Capriato, Aftermarket Weekly Week 170 with Rick Levitan. Hi, Rick. How you doing? Man, I am great. We just ran this uh, short little video on the Apex Service Awards that ends August the 31st. Please, everyone, I think you know how important those honors are. Please dig down, uh, get to aapexshow.com forward slash service awards. Download that application and, uh, and complete it and then upload it again. I'm sure you know somebody. We're here to talk about real estate. I have to say, Rick, I've never done a show on real estate. This is the first one. And you are so darn qualified to be here to talk about this. Rick's from Auto Stream Car Care Centers, nine locations, Maryland. I bet you've bought some real estate. A few. <laughs> I bet you have. And he's got a great, great background. And I'm going to explain it all to you in just a sec. But first, high fives to our great sponsor, Dorman. Dorman Products creates hundreds of new automotive replacement products every month. Part of what makes Dorman so unique? is their ideation of new and innovative products. They have dedicated teams all across the U.S., Mexico, and Canada looking for new product ideas. Since every solution starts with a problem, these teams of researchers, field analysts, product specialists, and contributors consistently visit repair shops and make field calls. Now, this is to best understand the problems the industry is facing. In certain cases, Dorman will manufacture aftermarket replacements so you aren't forced to go back to the OE. Other times, experts take it an additional step, further solving what made the original part problematic in the first place. Solving for a problem is what powers the innovation engine at Dorman. Dorman Products has become an incredible engine for innovation. They are constantly bringing new replacement parts to the automotive industry, and they routinely release tens of thousands of parts across all different categories. Now, why do they do all of this? to enable technicians the freedom to fix their customers' cars and trucks. To do this, Dorman has dedicated teams focused on different aspects of the vehicle to ensure that they are meeting the needs of the aftermarket. Although a lot of their parts are reverse engineering of original equipment, they also redesign and redefine solutions such as their loaded knuckles or programmable electronic power steering rack. Dorman has invested in these OE Fix innovations to help you save time, your customer money, and prevent vehicles from coming back to your shop. In certain cases, Dorman will manufacture aftermarket replacements so you aren't forced to go back to the OE. Hey, want to know more about Dorman? Visit dormanproducts.com forward slash tour. Hey, thanks, Dorman. I'm going to be at the, um, the Warminster campus of ATC in Warminster, Pennsylvania for dormantraininglive.com. September 23rd. I'm going to give the keynote speech there. A-S-T-E. Tracy and I will be there September 28th through the 30th. We're going to be at Apex, of course, October 31st through November 2nd. And I'm going to give the keynote at the MAX conference in Orlando in February. Rick, wow. Listen, here's what I'm excited to learn. When anyone wants to find a way to expand, we know that we have to search for the property. We have to determine if it's right for us. We have to get financing unless we have a bag of money sitting around. And maybe that's not even smart to use, but then you have to determine financing. And then, of course, the acquisition, the four very key steps that we're going to talk about. Let's talk about Rick's qualifications. Oh, by the way, his partner, Doug Grills, been on the podcast a ton of time. And so has his director of operations, David Asquith, out there at AutoStream, nine locations in Maryland. His background, which is why it's so critical. Here's a shop owner with nine shops who favors real estate because you, know, you cut your baby teeth in it. 
So tell us a little bit about when you worked for mobile. Well, I started at mobile as a marketing rep and uh, in Northern Virginia. And then as I progressed through the different chairs, I ended up in the real estate department in, in Florida and handled all the divestments and new business down there, new business on the West Coast and divestments in the Southeast. And then I went to, um, to Phoenix and I uh, was a real estate rep there doing new to industry sites and rebuilds. And then became the area manager for the western half of the United States, moved to Los Angeles, all the real estate activities in, in the West Coast. And then um, continued in real estate. I uh, was just the real estate manager for Japan. So I was there and I've been responsible for real estate all over the country. And then I went to work for, later on, I went to work for a real estate investment trust called U.S. Restaurant Properties. And uh, they brought me on to expand their portfolio of restaurants doing sale leaseback financing to gas stations. Because at the time, fast food and gasoline were starting to merge together. And uh, so they brought me on to do that. And then Doug and I started uh, Convenience Retailing, the parent company AutoStream, back in 1999. Wow, amazing. So you were new to the industry, which to me, in many cases, that's a bright spot in coming into the service business because you're not stuck in a paradigm of, you know, I got to work in the bays and you came and you probably looked at it more from a, your training of mobile and the real estate, more leadership management uh, kind of, I can't remember, was Doug in the industry or not? Was Doug an outsider? No, Doug and I both worked for mobile. Ah, you, that's right. You both did. Yeah. So our first locations were gas stations and they just happened to have service bays. So (laughs) that's sort of the evolution. It's a great story, and and it's been a long time coming to have you on. But I think it's critical today as our industry continues to consolidate and many shop owners are looking to grow through acquisition. So here's a guy, smart, nine locations, probably done everything in real estate than we can only dream of. Let's start with searching. You know, how do we find the next location, your perspective? There's lots of ways to find new locations. There's a ton on the internet, right? So there's websites on the internet that you can sign up on and they'll send you, you know, everything that's available in the market that you're looking for. But before you start looking for sites, you need to develop a strategy. You need to think about where you want to grow, how you want to grow. And I think you need to map out something first before you just start looking. So I've done a real estate strategy. I update it all the time. And then as far as between websites like LoopNet and Crexy, and there's all, there's all kinds, there's business brokers, guys out there trying to sell automotive shops, the, the business part. And then there's real estate brokers and making contacts with them. And then of course, you have your vendors that supply you. They know when guys are looking to sell, you know, they may go in there and the snap-on tool guy may go in there and find out that, you know, guy's getting tired and wants to get out. And that's another way to find out. And of course, your employees, you know, we get employees from other shops and they sometimes bring leads. And then there's always searching by driving around and looking. I love that part. I bumped into my best location one day by just driving around. I bet that you and Doug and your entire team have hidden in some safe somewhere where you think your next ideal location would be. And I'm not asking for it. I'm just saying that if I was going to grow somewhere and I loved this town or this particular neighborhood, or I've seen the demographics and the kind of income, I know what kind of company we have. I've seen the competitors. Wow. Wouldn't it be cool if I could blank? Is that a really good strategy to have? Well, it's a great thought process. You, you, you know, you, you, you want to identify markets where you want to be. 
but then you have to find the right opportunities. And sometimes you can afford the opportunities and sometimes they don't make financial sense. So you got to be flexible. It's you're constantly juggling. In other words, you're looking at sites. I look at a hundred sites for everyone that interests me. So I go through tons, but then as you find something, then you look at the the strengths and the weaknesses of each site. And you're constantly juggling the sites that you're looking at to figure out which is going to be the next best fit. So don't fall in love with your number one target or goal because you may either overpay. Listen, we've done enough shows on succession and acquisition and buying. I mean, there's such an incredible strategy behind that, but we're talking about real estate. Do many shop owners that you know want to buy the real estate or are they happy with getting themselves into this growing, taking a lease with an option to buy? I think most people would prefer to buy the real estate if they can. Right up front. Up front, but it depends upon the market you're in. In other words, it's a lot harder to buy real estate if you're in New York City or Washington, D.C. or you know major metropolitan cities where the cost of real estate is very expensive. If you're in more rural areas, cost of real estate is a lot less. So, And then there's a lot of REITs, a lot of shopping centers are owned by big publicly traded REITs. You're not going to be able to buy there. You're going to have to lease. So it's a mixed bag. You're going to have some fee properties and depending upon how many locations you're, you're trying to get to, you're probably going to have a mix of lease locations and fee properties. We throw acronyms around our industry, just like they're M&Ms. REIT, you mentioned REIT in the beginning. I've studied REITs just a little bit to, to understand them. The Real Estate Investment Trust, am I right? That's what it's called? Just quickly and, you know, in 20 seconds, explain to our audience what a REIT is. Uh, basically, it's a company that a lot of, most of them are publicly traded companies, not all, that invest in purchase, you know, shopping centers, or it could be fast food, it could be office buildings. There's lots of different segments, but they purchase and then lease back. And then the majority investors that buy shares of these REITs, it's like a mutual fund. Most of the money that they make goes back in the form of dividends to the shareholders. There are certain guidelines that REITs have to have, to have but essentially it's companies that buy lots of real estate and then lease it back. And that's how they make their income. Could I have a personal REIT? Could you have a personal REIT? Yeah, sure. I have property. I've got a lot of family. And can I create one? I guess you could. As long as it's not publicly traded, sure. You'd buy lots of property and then you'd be collecting income. I'd consider that a real estate investment trust to some extent. Got it. Okay. Just curious. Because I recall Hunt Demarest, our CPA who does a show on the network, talking about REITs in one of his shows is on acquisitions and real estate. And that's when I was first introduced to a REIT. I had no idea, but I love being the dumbest kid in the room when it comes to learning new things. So thank you for the REIT thing. So you got to actually determine if you're going to buy this piece of real estate. And let's just assume that we want to put up a shop. We're not, we're not out there. This show is not about real estate as an investment. It's about real estate as a business opportunity to open another shop. So demographics, how critically important is that? And where can we get that information? Well, demographics are, I think are key. The first thing though, in terms of the shops, do you want to build? Are you looking to invest and build ground up? Or are you looking to buy an existing shop? Or are you looking to convert an industrial, a warehouse or some retail to convert it to a base? There's lots of different ways to find that next location. And they all have different strengths and weaknesses on it. Demographics are key. You know, 1.3 people bring their cars to a shop 1.3 times a year, I guess nationwide. So unlike the gas station industry that I came from, somebody's going to come to your gas station once a week and fill up. They may come every day to buy a cup of coffee and a donut. 
right? But that's not the same for the automotive repair industry. It's different. They're going to come to you once a year, maybe twice a year. So density is one of the key components I look at. And uh, when I say that, there's all kinds of people out there that have a great success. There are guys out there that have been in the business. They may be a onesie. They've been in the business for 20 years. Maybe their father owned the shop before it. Maybe they don't have the density, but they have a fantastic reputation. Anything can work. But my job is to you know find the best real estate I can and make it as easy on our operations folks as possible to achieve the results. When you say density, Rick, do you mean population? Yes, population. Population and households, I look at a one, three, and five mile radius. One, three, and five. Five being your max reach? For purposes of analysis, that's what I look at. If you were in suburbia, I mean, I live in the country. My town has 4,000 people. Okay. There's a brand new auto parts store being built from a national parts company that puts four parts stores in a town of 4,000 people. Do you think they did their destiny look? I find it fascinating to see where, again, let's just use this for just a minute. Maybe they looked at who their competitors were and say, we can do better, and maybe we'll knock one out. I don't know necessarily if that's the case, but when you look at density and you look at your operation, the success that you've had, the team you have, the retention that you have, the core that you have, you know that you could probably go into a place, and because of the graying of owners and many getting out, you got a great possibility to be super, super successful, no matter what the competition is. True. It's changed for us over the years. So in the beginning, you know, being in the gas station as the background, we were looking for exclusivity, right? Because typically that's more important to us in the gas station industry, because, you know, if you have a branded service station and, and an independent comes in, they can really hurt your margins and put a dent in your business. As we've gotten better and more experienced in automotive maintenance and repair, competition is less of a concern for us. We have gone in and we've taken over operations and doubled and tripled the sales in the first first month or two. Yeah, we're going to get ready to do an episode on that exact topic. I mean, stop looking to the left or the right or behind you, put the horse blinders on and just go 110 miles an hour. Fix you, have the best operation you can, the best people that you can, and then you ultimately have no competition. Even though out of the left corner of your eye, you may want to know that they're still there. Don't consume about them and what they're doing. Right, exactly. I pay much less attention to competition now than I did when we first started. So that's evolved over the years. Do you still have gas stations, Rick, in the group? Yes, we do. We have one gas station that we operate in its entirety. We have two that we've actually leased to a dis- an oil distributor and leased back the service base. Ah, I mean, that's an old, old model. How many of those do you have? We have two of those. Two of those. So someone is running the fuel out front and you guys have the bays. Correct. Do you find that that traffic helps you guys? Well, we differentiate our brand versus the oil company brand. So it's completely different. You know, we have different entrants. We try to separate. Do I think that having gas station helps us? Not necessarily. Really don't. In fact, that's why we decided as we move forward to get away from gas because I think consumers think that service bays at gas stations, there, there may be less professionalism there. You had mentioned in your talking points a site potential rating worksheet. Yes. 
Wow. I know that we could probably do two hours on that, but you, can you give us a highlight? So when I was in Japan, this is one of the tools I developed, but you remember the movie Moneyball? Oh God, yes. Okay. So essentially it takes a ton of different factors and weights them and tries to give me one number to look at. So I evaluate sites based on this worksheet and then it comes down to a number. So as I force rank locations, I have a number to look at. I find it fascinating. We did an episode with Matt Fonslow on Moneyball the Movie. Actually, Matt did it on the Aftermarket Radio Network. And it was it's fascinating. And what I did is I watched the movie a long time ago. And then when Matt did the episode, I decided to watch the movie Moneyball again and take out a yellow pad and take notes about it. Because there's just so much to learn about statistics and, and valuing certain elements. You know, the story is, is that some of your best ball players, say it's basketball, say it is baseball, work best when there are other people on the field that help that person be a star. And you don't necessarily have to have every element at a 10. I'm sure that certain things you're looking for in a business can help other areas of the business blossom and grow. Sure. Real estate is an art. It's not a science. No two locations are the same. So you're looking at whether it's in the ingress and the egress and the parking and the visibility and the traffic count, the traffic flow, uphill, downhill, there's, you know, size of the property, the capacity of the building. There's lots of different elements to look at. None of them are the same. I can't imagine you out for hire to a, another shop owner who says, would you come in and do that evaluation for me? I'm pretty busy doing what I'm doing for <laughs> our company. <laughs> I'm giving him work here. Look at this. <laughs> All right. I'll be your agent. We'll get you out there. <laughs> you were also telling me about you just don't want to grow for growth's sake. And to me, that's a strong discipline to have. Yes. Well, it's not only the number of locations, but it's where the locations are. So for example, we're in the DC Baltimore market. We're not going to cross over into Northern Virginia. All right. In, in other words, we're not that far from Northern Virginia, but we're not going to cross over. We're staying in. You can expand too fast. You can expand too far. Makes it more difficult for operations to move people around and, and do certain things. We're not going to be Goodyear or Firestone. We're not going to have 3,000 locations across the country or whatever. We're focused on being the very best we can. And we're trying to grow smart so that we can manage each location as best as we can. I love what you told me. Every location must stand on its own. Don't think that you're going to grow to help the next place or to, you know, find yourself a base of operations that needs all of them. They have to be individual businesses. That's right. Everyone's got to make it on their own. There's no question about it. So I'm sitting down doing negotiations. I'm trying to get a deal. I get frustrated. Should I just go and have a cup of coffee, sleep on it and try it again? No, no, you're going to get frustrated. If you're in real estate, you're going to get frustrated. You deal with all kinds of attorneys sellers, brokers. I mean, there's all kinds of people that have their hands in the mix and it can get extremely frustrating. One of our best locations was a guy was selling the business. He'd been there for 40 years. His whole life was there and he'd never sold a business before. So he's nervous. This is his exit. And I mean, he's going through a contract and he's looking at every comma, every period. And it took a long, long, long time. So you cannot get frustrated. If you love the location, there's always a way to figure it out. There's always a solution to figure something out. And sometimes just walking away, maybe for a week and then coming back saying, hey, where did we go wrong? How can we get where we need to get? 
Sometimes you have to put a pause, got to call a timeout and take a step back. But at the end, you want that location, you'll figure it out. And if they're looking to sell, they'll figure it out too. And think of the number of shop owners that are considering a second location that started as a technician and evolved themselves into be a business person. They got themselves a coach. They're learning how to make money. They know how to make money. And then they walk into their first expansion to your point. Wow, I have no idea how to do it. And the person that you may be acquiring doesn't have a clue either. So there's two, if you will, very green people. Coaches can help. Am I right? Coaches can help. But if you're acquiring a business, you're going to have a contract, a purchase. If you're, and certainly if you're, if you're leasing, you're going to have a lease with a landlord. And if you're buying it, you're going to be having a purchase contract to buy the property. You're going to need a good attorney. Unfortunately, in today's environment, you know, shaking hands (laughs) doesn't work. So you're going to need a good attorney and that attorney should help you through the process. And I knew that's where you were going, and that's critical to be sure you've got some great advisors around you. And in fact, in some cases, you want a great CPA to help you with any tax ramifications for you personally and or the business. A lot of guys are out there who want to buy it personally, do an LLC and put the property in that company. Do you see your friends in the industry doing a lot of that? Yes, I do. Where they'll have an LLC for for the real estate, they'll actually lease it to their operations, separating real estate from operations. So we've got everything working and we're really good. We're, we're getting close and we're going to talk about financing now. Is it good to offer the suggestion if they would hold paper? Absolutely. Depending upon the situation, if, if you can get them to hold paper, that's fantastic. You know, if they want their price, then it's your terms. Their price are my terms. So sometimes you get them to hold paper. That'll really help you out. I like that. That's a great takeaway right there. Some of the biggest things about an acquisition is the telling the employees, informing the customers. It seems to me that people struggle over this to do it the right way, not to lose anybody, but the transition must happen. The deal has to happen. The former owner doesn't want to tell anybody, but maybe can you give us some guidance or advice on that? Yeah, it really depends upon the business that you're purchasing. So for example, we bought a a business, the guy owned it for 40 years. He had all kinds of awards. He was very successful. We did not want to go in there and rebrand it immediately. We waited about a year and a half before we rebranded it. Now, we'll take a picture with the outgoing guy and he'll send a letter out to his database with the picture of all of us shaking hands and all that and saying, hey, we're, I'm in this, you know, I'm going to retire. These guys are great. And so we have a whole marketing plan of what we do when, when we take over a location. There have been other locations where the business is, we like the location, we see great potential, but the operations are not good. And therefore, there's no benefit in waiting. We go in and rebrand immediately. You want to try to keep employees, obviously, where you can and sort through that. And we've been successful in doing that. And for example, I mean, David, when you take over, David will go out to dinner with the techni- each technician and his, and his spouse or partner and let them know who we are. We bring other technicians, other employees to a meeting when, when the owner tells his people, hey, I'm selling. Then he introduces me and Doug and David, and then I say a few words and so forth and, and let them know who we are and what we're about. And then we'll have technicians and we leave the room. And then our technicians, so we have employees sit down and talk to the technicians. Hey, here's who these guys are. Here's what they do. And we walk out and we tell them, hey, say whatever. So we, we try to be as transparent as possible. 
Incredibly smart strategy, Rick. I love that. I've been involved in that in in my former life, where you sit in front of the team that you know you're bringing in. <laughs> Every one of them in the room, you know, you find out a year later. We didn't believe you. We thought it was BS. We're not going to let anybody go. You know, the name won't change. You know, we're going to try to we're going to keep all your policies and HR the where it is. You know, it was a big company that I was with. Even though that was our true intent, it doesn't necessarily end up like that. And I love the part where. You leave the room and the team comes in and will field any question that anyone has to say, hey, yeah, I think things will change, but I think you'll like the way they change. Exactly. I mean, I've had people at our some of our events, guys come up and say, I've been a technician for 30 years. I worked for all kinds of locations, Goodyears, Firestones, Mr. Tires, whatever. I've never been to an event like this. I've never you know, worked for a company like this. So that makes us proud. That's what we try to do. Part of this message here, just no cookie cutter. If it's your first time, you're creating plan A. And who knows if plan A works for acquisition number three and and so on and so forth. But in your particular case, with nine locations, nine, I'm sure, totally different ways to go about it, you can't approach any acquisition, any opportunity the way you've done any other one. Keep an open mind. Be hungry. Yes. If you have one location, you're looking to add a second. And that one location must be very successful. Otherwise, you wouldn't be looking to add a second. First, analyze the first location. Look at the demographics. What is the population base? How many households? What's the income level? What's your traffic count? Analyze what you have and then try to glean from that. And as you move to others and you start looking at new locations. I just got this vision of sitting down with your core leadership team at your business and doing an SWOT on your own business. What's our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? And take that serious. Do something with it. I mean, just don't do it for the sake of not making improvements, but then do an SWOT from your outside perspective on this new potential acquisition. And then look at the gray in the middle. So interesting. Hey, let's talk finance, lease versus purchase, where we're going to get our money. And also what kind of pro formas or financial statements do we need to figure out and budget for? Well, in the beginning, when you're starting out, we had um, business plans that we would do for each location. Over the years, we've developed relationships with lenders that now it's fairly easy, to be honest with you. I do a projection. I'll do a three-year projection and give them our financials. And it gets easier and easier More with more success. The more you grow, you do what you say you're going to do. There's a trust there. You know, they believe what, what you say you're going to do, you do. So we have a relationship with a local bank that provides our financing for our fee properties. And today, as interest rates are higher, you're probably going to lease more than you're going to buy. I try to get a purchase option, a writer first refusal in all my leases. Financing, you got to do a performance, you got to do a business, you should probably do a business plan, be as professional as possible. So that's my thought here. If you got an owner to consider holding the paper and you just wipe your brow, wow, thrilled, I'm happy, and you don't do the pro forma and you don't do the business plan, you're hurting yourself, consider that you're going to go to the bank, even though they're going to hold the paper, and bring those disciplines into location, the next location. Yeah, if, if you're going to go to a bank and borrow money, you're going to have to have a pro forma. You're going to have to provide them documentation. They're going to want to see your financials. They're going to want to see the pro forma. There's no question about it. Even if the guy's holding paper. Now, I mean, if you can get somebody to hold paper, that's great. That's less money you have to borrow from the bank. 
right? So that's a positive. So you're still telling me that instead of using your own cash, you may want to go to the bank for equipment and upgrades, even though they're going to hold the paper for a majority of the business. Pro formas, let's let's explain to people three-year or five-year pro forma. Three years all I need to do. You're taking a profit and loss statement. I mean, do you do it on the balance sheet or just? I do it on the P&L. Yeah. And then, you know, you'll just have your projected sales by month for the first 12 months and then next and factors on this big spreadsheet that automatically increase all that and the expenses and so forth. And yeah, inflation numbers, uh, cost of living numbers, expense numbers, uh, marketing as a percent of sales, all that stuff. All that stuff gets adjusted. And I'm sure the typical shop owner, Rick, who pretty damn smart person, been very successful, says, wow, that pro forma would be very difficult. Where can they get themselves a pro forma or at least some kind of template to work from? There's got to be a ton of them available online. You can probably get one online. I Obviously, I have my own template that I use, but talk to your accountant. Your accountant can clearly help you with that and probably send you a template to use. Wow. Okay. So now we acquire the site. And as you kind of explained a little earlier, you know, rebranding equipment, uh, all the upgrades that are necessary, that's got to be factored in the money you need. Correct. When you're looking at a site, it's all part of your negotiations. I want so much money for, let's say it's a fee property, but you bring in a building, a guy that's going to check out the building, it's falling apart. You got to replace bay doors, his equipment's, you know, 20, 20 years old. You know, all that comes into the negotiations. Hey, I'm sorry. It's just not worth X. It's worth, you know, Y because you're going to deduct these things. It's all part of what you're negotiating towards. And I think everyone understands this, but I don't mean to belabor this, but whatever the nut is that you're spending to get this place, be it acquiring the name, maybe there's some goodwill in there and or the property and or the quote, quote, equipment. And you say, well, look to the owner, I've got to spend another hundred grand, $125,000 to make this place habitable, business purpose wise. You put all that money in the bucket and you say, can I pay for this in five years? And that determines the amount of goodwill or the business's worth. And if you can't, based on the pro forma that says I'm going to make X amount per month, sooner or later, you don't want to every dime you make to go toward the note. You want to actually get ahead. Absolutely. You've got to look at every site's different. You got to look at them. You got to analyze what you're, what you're going to have to put into it, how much equipment, new equipment, rebranding, if that's what you're going to do right away. And you got a certain nut that you're going to make. And then you run your projections and based upon how much your mortgage is going to be, plus your lease or your rent or whatever the situation. Hey, can I make money here? Is this worth it to me? Do I believe in this location? And if you do, you go for it. And if you can't get it to work or it doesn't make sense, then you got then you walk away. If I was a single shop owner and it was time, I'm ready, my team is ready, our financials are right, and there's some opportunities that I see in that five-mile zone or the next town over, and I've, I'm kind of doing some research, you're setting out taking your brand to another level and and building a brand by you know going to a, another location is so so critical but you've got to have a really good base to work from i remember back you know maybe two or three years ago i spoke to a lot of multi-shop operators and i said so how did the second one go he says hmm it wasn't as as good as we wanted we didn't have the processes and we didn't have the systems in play and there were some things we finally did our third and realized that it's almost like and you share a little bit when you guys started to grow store one store two store three how much learning curve is there in those first couple of uh, branches as we talked about earlier, me and Doug were from corporate environment. So having process and systems was something we were used to, that we were familiar. We never started out thinking we were only going to have one or two locations. 
our plan was always to operate a large company. That was our goal from the beginning. So all the process, all the systems, that was second nature to us. But then when we had to focus on the service bay business, because remember, we had gas stations, gas stations, convenience stores, car washes, a subway. We had all these different profit centers that we grew up with. Now, we had bays in the oil company. There was bays, but it was more from the oil company perspective, it was more about retailing than anything else. Um, We didn't really know that business. So that took some time. We made the decision to get out of gas and sea stores and focus on automotive repair. That first location that was critical that that be successful. So that was a challenge. It was cool that you had that discipline from from mobile. They were a very structured, very disciplined company. I believe they still are. And a lot of guys are, are really hit upside the head pretty heavy when they try to duplicate what they had, but they didn't have anything to duplicate. They thought it was good, but it wasn't. By the time you get the third store and if it's not solid, there's a little crumble in the wall. I mean, that's what people have told me. Yeah, it took us a long time. There's a lot through in the whole story. It would it would be another episode about the whole story of A to Z, but I would say we really started things really started changing for us in probably the last six years or so. So it took a long time. It took a long time to get good. We could call it the learning curve episode. Absolutely. And David will tell you. I mean, David didn't know anything about cars when he first started. He was from the he was from the convenience store industry too. So it took a long time to really fine-tune and learn the skills. And just because you turned a wrench doesn't make you qualified to be a real estate magnet. Right. (laughs) And don't ask me to work on your car. That's smart. I won't. Hey, this was great. Any final words for our audience? This was one of the most in-depth thinks that we've done on real estate, especially from someone of the cloth like you for a real estate background and and nine uh, auto stream car care centers in the Maryland area. Any final thoughts? I just think that if you want to grow, you got to work with professionals. You got to get good, find good brokers to talk to, whether they're business brokers or real estate brokers. Look online, analyze sites, sign up for so you can get demographics. There's companies online that you you can pay to get that if you want to do that, or your brokers can provide you with demographics. But analyze your business first. It's not a science; it's an art. And take your time and and with the right people helping you, you'll get there. But do a strategy first. How many bays are you looking for? What's your capacity? Where do you want to be? And are you going to be industrial parks? You're going to be retail. You're going to pay more for retail to be in those type of areas. So lots of things to consider. Do you, do you want to go into a location that was never automotive repair before? And so all of a sudden it was, it was a mattress store. Now there's an opening to knock some holes in the wall, open that thing up and have an automotive repair center there. So you're going to start from zero. Nobody, no, it was never automotive before. Or are you going to go for existing locations? Or are you going to build something from the ground up? So there's a million ways to skin the cat. You just got to think through your plan, have a strategy and stick to it. I just came up with 30 questions on just what you said, and I got to have you back, or we need to do a Q&A on real estate with, uh, with people inside the industry. But this was fascinating. We've got a really nice, concise episode that we can point people to to think real estate or respect real estate and how it all fits in, and, and actually growth too, but the whole real estate angle. Rick Levitan from AutoStream Car Care Centers, nine locations, his partner, Doug Grills. And you've heard Doug on the show before. And of course, David Asquith has been a great contributor in the last couple of years to us on his whole role as the director, uh, managing director and you know leadership and stuff. So we're on a great business, Rick. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Carm. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time... 